Welcome to The Ring Rider, a Wraithland FM podcast where we talk about all things J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Thomas Kelly. And I'm Seth Levine. And we're here to explore the intersection of mythology and technology through the lens of Tolkien. Yes, that's right. And his amazing stories and how they still have applicability in our times. This first episode is really us talking a little bit about sort of our initial friendship and how it formed around the Peter Jackson films when they initially came out, is when Seth and I first met. And also, we are in these initial episodes going to be revisiting The Rings of Power this first season. It came out last year. We didn't launch the podcast at that time, but we thought we would give it some time, sit with it, and see how we felt about it a year later, because there's so much noise around it when it came out. So in this first episode, we're going to watch it again and check it out. And then there's some other things we're going to get into as well. Some of the stuff that's happening today with technology and how it relates to some of the themes and ideas that uh, are being explored in The Rings of Power. So that's kind of going to be cool. Definitely, yeah. There's a lot of drama in the world of AI. AI. Artificial intelligence. That's right, yeah. So, let's get started. All right, here we go. So, OpenAI. OpenAI. Tolkien wrote a lot about the machine and technology. What do you think about it? What's this OpenAI thing? It is, uh, well, like I, we spoke the other day, we're kind of talking about it, and I brought up the idea that it's, AI is going to be like electricity was to people back in the day. A new technology, it's kind of feels like magic. And it's a powerful tool that we hopefully will use for good. Its potential for good is mind-boggling, but its potential for evil is also mind-boggling and scary and terrifying. But, you know, regardless of that, it's coming. There's no stopping it. Well, it's really because Tolkien is pretty popular, Probably not with everybody in Silicon Valley, but there's been a number of articles in the last maybe several years about Tolkien and people like the founder of Napster, you know, having a, a Hobbit-themed weddings, and Elon Musk is famously a Tolkien fan. Peter Thiel, one of the founders of Peter Thiel's, one of his startups, uh, Palantir, is also a huge Tolkien person. But politically, they're on the opposite sides. There's a lot of political diversity across the Tolkien sort of interest audience and people who admire his works. You have what's happening in Italy with their prime minister, Georgia Maloney. So it's a very, it's an interesting time. And I think Tolkien, you know, maybe there's just not much there. In a lot of ways, it's just kind of like fun and it's popular. Obviously, Peter Jackson's movies had a huge influence and brought a lot of people into it. But I think a lot of people who are fans are more, maybe more than Peter Jackson fans. People like Peter Thiel, you know, read the book you know, multiple times, as did you and I. And I think a lot of people who are like his books not everybody likes Tolkien, even within the fantasy world. Some people like Philip Pullman and China Melville just sort of, you know, they hate him. And some of the reasons I hate him are things like the fact that some of his stories and knowing what his, I don't want to even characterize his politics, but maybe his views on society and whatnot are things that, you know, they're very much informed by kind of medieval times. And so rather than being someone who sort of maybe looked down on me- medieval times and the medieval era, you know, Tolkien was very much coming on the time of modernity and the rise of modernity and kind of saying, hey, there's something here that we that, I, that he thought was important and that we had sort of moved on too much from. So, but when we think about something like OpenAI, yeah, and artificial intelligence, I, I have to say, you know, I, I was exposed to it in learning about it, you know, in college. My father's an engineer. I grew up around computers. And this is, you know, I was, I'm born in the 70s, mid-70s. So before computers are a sort of household thing, 
I was around them. So yeah, you see things like 2001 Space Odyssey, you read science fiction, reading books like Neuromancer, uh, really understanding that there's a lot that's been happening that was very much science fiction for a long time. But in the background, there was real research going on, real development that was happening. Even back to the era, you know, Alan Turing and the and sort of the father of computer science. Like it's been a concept since the very beginning that we would come to this point. So I mean, I, even in the seventies, wasn't there that computer that was like a therapist computer? It, it gave you answers to questions and about or prompted you. It asked you questions about how you were feeling and stuff and was a useful tool, but nowhere near as conversationally advanced as what we have today in 2023. Yeah. But it's been around. It's not like, it's not a brand new technology. I, I agree. It's been something they've been working on and thinking about for a very long time. Yeah. And so there's a term that maybe not all Tolkien or fantasy fans are maybe familiar with yet, but the acronym is AGI, which means artificial general intelligence. And that's really just this idea of really coming up with an artificial intelligence system that is as smart or clearly will be have advantages over human human intelligence. But it would be something that would, at least your, our experience of it would be something like, it's a person. It, it has a fluidity and it acts and it talks and it responds to us. doesn't look like a person at this point, but as far as the interface, that interface could change. But right now, our interactions with it and what it would come back with to us would feel indistinguishable from being human. And it would have superior intelligence about most things because it would have all this data, all the, the world's knowledge at its fingertips, right? I think our human beings, our memories are limited. One thing that sort of strikes me as I was thinking about this stuff was having seen Oppenheimer, and that's been a very topical thing. And they've talked about how that is very much has a lot of synchronicity with this, what's happening in technology right now and the atom bomb and the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer and his his mixed feelings about the use of quantum mechanics and quantum physics to develop the atomic weaponry. Yeah, it's a it's. I mean, it was a tool and an understanding an understanding nature and using nature in a way that hadn't been used before. You know, ultimately, it was a destructive force, but it also was used in theory for good to prevent things from getting worse. I mean, that was the dilemma. I mean, we're kind of there again with AI, right? Right, yeah, that's a very good point. I was just reading The Atlantic this morning, an interview with Christopher Nolan by the journalist Ross Anderson, who had just written an article the day before about conversations he had with Sam Altman, who is the one of the co-founders and the former CEO of OpenAI, at least at the moment. He may be still reinstated. It keeps going back. You know, we're in the middle of the drama. This thing will keep moving. At the core of the, the drama of his ouster is this battle for the idea of how to wield this power and how to go forward with it and how fast right. to develop it. Well, yeah, there's, there's some faith in the free market, quote unquote, and, and allowing what wisdom there is in terms of human interactions. There'll be, there'll be mistakes and, but letting the market sort it through and you know it's going back to adam smith and his it's it's not totally mistake proof or safe proof but it's better than any other trying to totally top down manage it and so there's something to be said for that i think you know but, but i think yeah that brings me back to sort of again to what the oppenheimer connection was and ross anderson and sort of reading that and then reading his interview with christopher nolan and christopher nolan was basically saying that uh to your point yeah that was that was Oppenheimer's sort of viewpoint, he had this sort of parallel processing in his mind about the Manhattan Project and building the nuclear bomb. 
And he felt that, you know, people needed to see it be used to understand it. And that's the debate is very much in the movie. It's one of the center pieces of the movie is when that whole debate is, is had amongst a lot of military, political, and scientific leaders before the bomb is dropped on Hiroshima. And so the, the whole thing there is that people won't really understand what it is until it's used. There was the whole thing about what was happening with the war and between the Japanese Empire and the United States of America and the Allies and trying to bring that war to a close. And that argument that, you know, fewer people would die ultimately if the bomb was dropped versus a drawn out conflict and invasion. But, you know, that's always, it's, it's very hard to know, you know, whether that was true or not. But I think ultimately what you were saying was that, yeah, you know, that's something that right now everybody is thinking in terms of Sam Altman and they call, you know, it's a group they call them the techno optimists who are really feeling that you have to break eggs to make an omelet a little bit here. But I think, you know, we can use these sort of little metaphors and, and terms like that, but I think what we're all grappling with, and people are sort of, why it's fascinating. And I think an interesting story and where Tolkien, I think, is relevant here is that he was really looking at the mythological inheritance we have, especially in terms of Western culture and a certain part of Western culture, probably very much indexed towards Northern European, but he was definitely influenced by the classical world too and, and sort of greek and roman mythology like the power of the gods the power of nature taking it yeah. same thing that theme was explored in oppenheimer uh, oppenheimer also yes right up there and that's the book american prometheus was the book that the movie is based on which is you know one of two the most extensive biographies on oppenheimer i think one of the most relevant things obviously is the the making of the rings of power right and then the one ring and I think, you know, Tolkien always talked about applicability. The more I thought about it, and I was thinking about this stuff over the, over the weekend, you know, we're recording this right when the whole drama with OpenAI is just happening in real time. And, you know, Sam Altman's been fired. You know, he's gone back to the offices in San Francisco at OpenAI. The board has said, oh, we're open to maybe. And then they just said, no, we're sticking with it. He's not honest. You know, there's a lot of these sort of interesting things. And you can look at the Shakespeare. You can look at a lot of different things. But it's interesting because I think Tolkien has so penetrated our popular consciousness uh, at this point in this era, it is interesting. I've actually was thinking about it. And one point I was like, well, am I just making connections to make connections? But the more I thought, I was like, no, it's, it's actually pretty fascinating how much, I want to say lines up, but it resonates with his story of the ring and how it's created. Surely he was pulling on things like Prometheus and sort of these things about the mixed bag of, of technology and it being a double-edged, right? The sword itself. There's a reason why the double-edged sword is an even a phrase or a term, right? The, the sword is a piece of technology. You can use it to defend and protect, but it can also be used to kill and murder unjustly. So I think that is pretty interesting how much that actually connects. And a couple of things here. Kella Brimbor, who, for those who are not steeped in Tolkien, is an elven smith who wants to somehow preserve the magic and the glory that the elves who had been exposed to the power of the gods had brought that to the world we all live in. Middle Earth essentially is just this world. It is the, the world of mortals. It is planet Earth. He wanted to kind of find a way to preserve that magic and keep it going because the elves are essentially in some form of decline. And this all happens before the story proper, Lord of the Rings. And Celebrimbor He's really powerful smith. He's basically an engineer. He's like, a lot of these engineers work in open AI, right? And his intentions are mostly good, but there is some question there, right? Glory. He wants to do the thing to do the thing, right? I don't want to use the word itch. That's the thing that he, that's his purpose, right? And there is something about ego amongst any great 
you know, contest of wills or any great stories, right? Basically, these rings are technological marvels, and they have elven magic in them, which we can think of as technology. And for the most part, technology that's made with a more pure, higher ideal around them and behind them uh, doesn't mean they can't be misused, because they are previously, and we'll talk about it other times. But Anatar, who out of nowhere shows up and starts to offer help to make these rings. And Anatar is a character, and he's essentially what you could think of him as Lucifer in fair garments. Yeah. His Sauron. And and he fools Celebrimbor and the elves because they are so obsessed and so wanting to bring this technology into being. And because and it's coming mostly from a good place. He takes advantage of that. But he has his own technical prowess and power and knowledge, and you could call it wisdom, that he helps them then develop these rings. And there's many rings that they make, and we're, we were talking primarily about the three elven rings. So I'm going to read an entry from this book. It's The Complete Guide to Middle-Earth. I recommend any person getting into Tolkien. The three rings, the elven rings of power, they were forged without Sauron's assistance, and thus his taint was not directly on them. However, they and their works could be controlled by the One, and their wielders would be revealed to Sauron if he had the One Ring. Unlike the other rings, the three gave power to build, understand, and heal, not to control or conquer. The three were somehow successively hidden through the Second Age and were used in secret in the Third. However, when the One was destroyed, they became powerless, and the things wrought with them failed. The rings were taken to the West with the last writing of their keepers at the end of the Third Age. The three rings, each of which was a band set with a single gem, were Vilya, Nenya, and Nadia. So let's look those up. Vilya, the mightiest of the three rings of the elves. Vilya was originally worn by Gilgalad, but it was given by him to Elrond. Vilya was made of gold and was set with a great sapphire, also called the Ring of Air and the Ring of Sapphire. Now let's look at Nenya. The second of the three rings of the elves, worn by Galadriel. Nenya was made of mithril and had a white stone with a soft, flickering light, also called the Ring of Water and Ring of Adamant. And now Narya. The third of the three rings of the elves, originally worn by Círdan, but given by him to Gandalf when the latter came to Middle-earth. Narya was the Ring of Fire and had a red stone. It had the power to strengthen hearts, called Narya the Great, the Ring of Fire, and the Red Ring of Fire. Interesting that Círdan was the recipient of that ring. He's the oldest elf in Middle-earth. Right, but he's also the head of the Grey Havens, right? Yeah. And so, like, he's got association with the power of the sea and traveling back to the Blessed Realm. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, and that's, I think that, going back to the thing we were talking about, or, like, who was it given to? So it was given to Gladriel, it was given to Círdan, and it was given to Gilgalad in the beginning. So Celebrimbor didn't keep them for himself. Now, we talked about the One, the One Ring, and I think that's one thing that is really, on some level, why this open AI thing is interesting is that, as I thought about it, as I started to think less about who, who is who, I just, yeah, I just thought, like, wow, it's interesting how much it does resonate with what's happening. And I think ultimately the question then is, right, is artificial intelligence truly dangerous? Is it truly something like the One Ring? I think it's just sort of what, you know, Tolkien was doing was, was really, I mean, he was really onto something in terms of what what is happening in humanity has been there for a very long time, but I think it's just that much more pertinent, you know, and I think it goes back to him writing the books and being someone who grew up 
and then lived through a lot of the cataclysms that very much had to do with the industrial revolution. But it's also part of our species, like primal nature to create and to invent and to tinker with technology, like to grow with technology and shape it and have it shape us. And Mm -hmm. this is just another chapter in that process. And and he was commenting on it as an observation from his point of view. And it's very poignant and relevant to us in today's time as well. Our relationship with technology and what we do with it and how we use it has profound effects on our not only ourselves, but the future of our species. And those are points that I think he's, he's trying to to express to us in his works. And that's where coming back to Oppenheimer, why that's really important, right? Why, why, why that mo- movie felt like it was very timely when it came out this past summer. And because there's just a lot of both the technological thing that's happening as well as what's happening geopolitically. And in a lot of ways, they're, they're interrelated, right? And so I think that Tolkien, having lived and actually been on the battlefield in World War I, and then having three sons who were part of the conflict in very real terms, in terms of the battles of World War II, which was really sort of a another wave, bigger wave that crested after World War One and was coming in. Kind of going through that, I mean, it's really, you know, when you live through things like that, you really, I think that really deeply changes you. He never did completely denied that Lord of the Rings was not influenced by World War Two. Of course it was. I think you get that from his letters that it was. But he also said World War One was even more important for him, and that would make sense, right? Because he was actually in the Battle of the Somme and in the trenches and hearing and experiencing artillery fire and, you know, having friends dying from those battles. So, not sobering, right, to understand that he was on the end of that where technology and industrial warfare, the machine gun, artillery, bombs being dropped from planes, tanks, mustard gas, all that and seeing the level of sheer terror and destruction and death that that can do in such huge numbers, you know, that really is something that, you know, I think that the world has tried to learn from. But as we're seeing, even now, we are still, humanity and our species are still pretty good at getting into situations where we're killing each other. And so when you think about something like AI and artificial intelligence, when you look at the whole conflict with Ukraine, is that the drones are a big part of that. So the story of the continuum is very long what is this new devilry things I want to talk to you about was just sort of the rings of power was how relevant the story is actually thinking about it after a year of watching the show I think it's just pretty right on about what they have chose to focus on part of that's just Tolkien having a great kind of universal story but I think that the series only started becoming interesting once they really started getting into that like it's the very end of the first season and it's funny a year after it comes out and actually I think what it's about is actually super relevant right now yeah, it's impactful. Uh, the, the ideas that were impactful to the characters are also impactful to us in our lives today. 
as a viewer and going through the things that are unfolding in the world today, like with OpenAI and stuff like that. When it first aired, what was your experience? I loved it. Like, I thought, I had mixed feelings about it, but I also tried to watch it with a blank slate and not try to view it through the goggles of, of what my expectations or desires were. Because when the original Lord of the Rings movies came out, I had reread all the books before the movies came out. And I had, there was such a conflict in, in the Delta in my mind of what was in the books versus what was in the movies that created a lot of friction for my experience of it. Even though I think it was probably the best filmic expression of that book that you could get in that time. And I didn't understand filmmaking as well as I do now. And so for this series, The Rings of Power, I just thought, okay, I'm going to go in with a blank slate and just experience it, go along for the ride. And I love the ride. I, you know, I didn't think it was perfect, but I liked the characters. I liked the music. I liked the cinematography and a lot of the ideas that they were grappling with are, I think, at the heart of what I loved about Tolkien, which is the human spirit or the spirit of living beings, maybe. I mean, it's definitely earnest. The show is earnest. Uh, that's, I think ultimately to its, to its benefit. I think that's good. I think, you know, for me, I, I had a lot of, I had mixed feelings, you know, really from a, someone who loves film and shows, like, I think there's a lot of, a lot of problems with it, you know, that I have actually. I, I, but almost because it started being attacked so harshly. Um, and maybe that got confused with my, like, my feeling of how much, I am a real admirer of Tolkien and what he achieved. Right. And knowing that and, you know, being aware of the imperfections, of course, but I think that the show, the amount of money they spent on it, it looked for the most part really good. I did feel that it was just a little bit weak and different. Weak's the wrong word. Just it was very light. And I think that. One of these reactions that were quite negative to it that I thought were some fair reactions. Yeah, it didn't. It was not a. Yeah, no, it's it not. Did. It's perfect. And yeah, it's certainly. Well, I mean, you, Peter Jackson's work isn't perfect. And a yeah, lot of the people that are critiquing Rings of Power think that Peter Jackson's work is perfect. I feel. You well, a lot of them are Peter Jackson fans. Yes, and yeah, I love Peter Jackson. Movies. I just don't think it's you know. But you and I are, are fans of the books way before the movies came out, so we have that history with the stories that supersedes anything that came after. I mean, I, to me, Peter Jackson's movies are, there's many problems I have with them, right? But I mean, problems are on word. They're just, they're not the books, you know, but yeah. they are at times really good. And at certain times there are parts of it are as good. If not, I could never think of how we would do anything better than what they did for moments of the book. But back to sort of rings of power, I thought it was earnest. They obviously put a lot of work into it. I thought that things were uneven. And so to me, it was just sort of, it's a first season of a show that was made during the pandemic. And I, my whole thing was always that after seeing the Peter Jackson films, and I had a similar journey to you, you and I went that journey together. Oh yeah. And I had been very optimistic about it and I'd followed stuff. I was part of the wandering.net sort of following that every day, even got involved with that community a little bit. I went to an event before the movie came out that was part of the Mythopoeic Society and where Philippa Boyens, one of the screenwriters, I came and gave a talk. And, and even then, like the fandom was sort of in the people who really cherish these stories. I was right there and I felt like I needed to, in my own way, defend the filmmakers, give them the chance to sort of express those. Because even then, before the Peter Jackson movies came, people forget 
they had, there were a lot of people who were saying, this is a sacrilegious or whatever. So I, I think having been through that journey before, I had already gone through those emotions and that, that sort of, there's the books and then there's the interpretations of the books. And everybody, every reader has their own interpretation of the yeah. books, right? Your version of the books in your own mind's eye, the movie that plays in your head or the emotional journey you have is probably lots of similarities. A big basis of our friendship uh, was about these stories and it continues to be a common ground for us yeah. as friends. Um, we've been friends for 20 years now and it started with our common love of Tolkien and these stories. And and so I went into it very excited. Yeah. Because I'd already kind of feel like I'd already gone through my baptism of fire with the Peter Jackson films. Right. And you and I, when we first watched those movies, with the literally the first time we both saw it, and I think myself even more than you, even though I had been supporting the films and I saw Philippa Boyne's talk and I, I had sort of rationalized how the movie is going to be different, I kind of hated it. The only thing that kept me going to go and watch it again was the music and the last sort of scene. I thought there was something there. Some of the action was pretty good. But man, the experience of the first Peter Jackson felt it was so dissonant, so different from my experience reading the books. I had a really hard time. And what saved, I think, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, was that you and I had bought tickets already to see it the next morning. We saw it yeah. opening. I went to Universal City Walk and I waited overnight and I bought the tickets and got it for a number of different people. But it was, it was a very, that was a big deal, really big deal. Going back to the, that initial reaction, I feel like I agree with you that it wasn't great. But then going back and watching it a couple more times gave it a, a lot of like, I began to see things that I didn't see the, uh, upon first viewing and feel things that I didn't feel upon first viewing that, that really were more in alignment or harmony with the heart of Tolkien. That when I was reading the books, what spoke to me, those elements were there and highlighted and brought out in a way that wasn't necessarily direct, but maybe indirect. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think for me, like I said, that first viewing at Universal. City Walk with all the fans and, and the members of the One Ring.net there. I met them. And at the end of that movie, I was really crestfallen. And the next morning, you and I went, I think we saw the first showing the next morning at a more local theater. And we went and saw it. And at the end of it, I remember thinking there was enough there that I liked. I thought, you know, okay, I think I understand what they're trying to do with this movie now. I was able to get an emotional grip on what they were doing. Because the first time I was just sort of thinking, this is not, wait, no, that's wrong. No, wait, uh, uh. It just felt like, and it, ultimately my feeling was that it was felt too fast. I felt that my first even the Fellowship of the Ring, Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring, felt too fast. It just felt like such a rushed experience, whereas I had loved reading that book multiple times. I've read Lord of the Rings probably, I don't know, maybe 20 times or more. I had really luxuriated in how that First book builds and builds, which is funny. A lot of people have a hard time with that book and never right. read it because of that. But once you get through it and you love it, it's like almost like you're just sort of, it's like a slow building DJ mix, you know, right. or a symphony and the way it builds. And so I just felt like it felt very compressed and compact and like, and chopped down. Like they had chopped off all the legs and arms of the story. And I, what I got was a nub of a, <laughs> of Lord of the Rings. But the next day we watched it, and I remember one key memory I remember was we were sitting there, and in the front there was some other Tolkien fan with his girlfriend. And I remember the credits came up, and he just sat there. And I remember his girlfriend or wife just kind of stood up 
and was like next to him. She just was giving him a space. I could tell how much she knew how much it meant to him. Right. And you could tell he was just watching it. And he, I could tell how moved he was by it. And so that fan was able to ha- have the experience that I wanted on the first time. But that's when I knew, like, that was also a good sign. I was like, okay, I'm being too harsh. Yeah. I'm being too precious about it. And I think it was the third time we saw it, because we saw it later that day. You and I were on, we were on cloud nine. Keep outing me. We were on cloud nine at that point. We were on cloud nine. We're like, no, this is really great. This is really good. And I remember getting emotional when I was supposed to get emotional during yeah. the movie. Yeah, because by that time, I've already gotten over the the contradictions of my, like, what I thought should happen. And I could go along for the ride of what was happening and then see, like, ah. And then I could see other things that were happening that I didn't notice before because I was clouded by, you know, my initial reaction. One of my favorite cinematic images is Aragorn is standing in front of that mural of his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. And... He's in the battle with Sauron, and it's, it's framed such that he takes the place of his great-grandfather, yeah. and he's taking on the burden and making this decision about his his path. And it is, it's, it's so uh, genius and beautiful, and it's just like, ah, this is, this is great. This is doing something that the book couldn't do. Yeah, it's bringing these visual layers in focus and overlapping layers like a kaleidoscope and bringing it all, all of a sudden and, and bringing all these multiple sort of depths into focus. And and as far as film, when it's done right, and they're doing it with such rich material, yeah, at that point, it was sort of... I'm trying to think what was the thing for me that really, when I finally got to that third viewing, what was the... I'm trying to remember what was the thing for me. And I think my thing was as simple as... And this seems... I mean, there was multiple things, but I think it was it was ultimately a couple performances. It was Ian McKellen and his Gandalf. And I think it's when he puts the ring into the fire and the envelope and it burns. And, and like when he first drops the ring, like that mood was like really great. And, and Elijah was sort of the way he sort of talks to Gandalf and he says, Gandalf. And the, just the way that they got certain things that were just so, so spot on that eventually those little brief moments of perfection started to bleed out to the rest of it so I could experience it. And then the things like, I remember um, just how they had Legolas and Moria, the way he jumps off, you know, the stairs onto one lower set of stairs. He's the first to go. And then when the stairs break and then he jumps, like that's not even in the book. Right. right. It's not even in the book, but the way they captured his character and he jumps there and he goes, Gandalf. And the way he says Gandalf, he's like a kid. Come on, like, you know, grandpa, dad, like, but in this sort of level of respect, he's like, you know, I'm here to protect you, Gandalf. Come. The way they did that was so good. Really, those little moments really sort of captured. And then eventually I was able to get to the points where I think emotionally it really sort of moved me you know, with the end, with Gandalf dying, et cetera. So the Rings of Power... I think it also, yeah, it also prepared me for the Rings of Power in ways that, A, better understanding what an adaptation is. And I know I didn't understand as much about it as I do now before then. And then in hindsight, also thinking about what you can and can't do in terms of a cinematic or filmic representation of literary work. The other thing is that Lord of the Rings was based on content that had been written and the Rings of Power is stuff they're kind of making up based on the foundation of the books, you know, but nothing taken directly out of the books. So Yeah, and that brings up a really interesting point because I think that you, we see it a little bit with the Hobbit films, and certainly there's a lot of the criticism in, is that there's not a lot of there, there's not enough there there for them to be making three movies out of it. And I think one thing that's interesting that I think 
both my experience with those films prepared me for the rings of power as well because because you see the problems but then I think those those movies actually enjoyed. I watched those movies with my wife and seeing her reaction to it. She hasn't read the books. For her, she really liked the Hobbit movies and she really enjoyed them. They really moved her in the end and sort of seeing the movies through her eyes a little bit and realizing, yeah, you know, that some people really enjoy them, really get it. And so that kind of, then I was able to find my way back through those films again and and really start to appreciate them more as well. And I think the Rings of Power, they have even less to work with. I mean, really, the thing I think that people are picking up on, and maybe it's the overriding criticism, there are some things that are not maybe from a subjective or objective artistic point of view in terms of the choices they've made, the, the writing of the story, you know, the runring.net ping them pretty hard. The Prance and Pony uh, podcasters did as well. But I actually read plenty of reviews where they said it was great. I also listened to the Ringerverse podcast with Mallory Rubin, and Joanna Robinson of the Ringer Network. They're great. I mean, they're great. And they are very literate. They are very high praising of the ride. And I think that a lot of people get stuck in their own frameworks and their own acts to grind. And I didn't, I think the writing sometimes is a little bit, it could be different. It's not, I wouldn't say it's 100% Tolkien or whatnot, but that's where I go back to like, they had very little to work with. There's very few lines of dialogue that they could go back to. It's so sketchy. They have the plots, most of the plot points. They have the, uh, I think the way the writers described it, the, the showrunners, is that basically they felt like they had constellations. And I think it's a very apt metaphor and analogy. And, and within that, as a, as a viewer, I approached it very similarly. Like, I'm not going to get, you know, necessarily everything I want out of this. And I just came in like, I'm going to be looking at something that's sort of like a constellation. And therefore, it's both there and not there as something that feels authentically talking to me. And so there's moments where it's like, oh, that's really shining bright. And that, that really works for me. And there's one other ones. And it's funny when I listen to some, a lot of people love the Moria stuff. They're so into it and so into the, the Elrond and Durin friendship. And for me, I really didn't, that was like my, one of my least favorite parts of the whole thing. Honestly, I just, it wasn't Moria as I ever have ever imagined it. I was not into what they did with that. I didn't think Moria was beautiful. It felt small to me. Like, it's just not what I, I, I was like one of my least favorite things of the oh, whole series. I didn't feel like they were showing all of it. I felt like, you know, even what you're seeing a little bit of this and it's obviously way bigger. I'm not saying I didn't like it. I'm just saying it's one of the, my least favorite right. things about it. And I'm not saying there's, I d- hated it. No, 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 no. I'm just saying all I'm saying is that people have their, oh, the things that other people like. Right, right. Yeah. I agree. And, with you. and that's what I'm getting at is that. Yeah. Well, because it wasn't Pete, it wasn't the Peter Jackson films. And if they did read the books and knew the books, yes, there was plenty to gripe at because it's so sketchy. You know, who's to say that this is how Tolkien would have told the story? Because he didn't tell right. it with this level of detail. So that's, I just want to kind of, for me, it's, it's important. That was my mental framework. Again, watching with my wife and seeing how much she was actually enjoying it. And then, and I know I have other friends who, people they watched with who have not read the books and they didn't like it either. So it's so right. subjective, right? Who what yeah. people like. But I think for me, the thing that to me I spent a lot more time thinking about was really the reaction to it. And I would say a lot of the overreaction and a lot of these sort of fans Hot fighting takes. fans. That to me, that was the thing that was the most sort of thing that from someone who admires Tolkien and what he's about, I found that that's the biggest problem I had. Did watch them two or three for, and the found out. So it's actually beyond my own sort of just personal reaction to it. So, so I actually have spent a lot more of my time kind of looking at that. Yeah. And I hope that with the second season, I hope with some distance in time, right. that those people in that debate, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, conversation, the conversation could be actually a little bit more 
I think, objective, rational. But okay, so one thing I will say is like the conversations you're talking about are taking place in spaces that are known to be sort of the places that people get attention by saying obnoxious things to each other. The other thing I want to say is that isn't it heartening that that content, that material is what's getting focused on and talked about in any way, shape or form rather than, you know, something else. It means that people are paying attention to it. And like the old saying, any press is good press kind of hopefully helps people to just like come to the content and have their own opinion about it by watching it. Uh, hopefully it's not shaped too much by the other people's opinions and they can make their own decision about what to think about it. But I think if you do watch it and you do give it a chance, given the context of today with all the animosity and conflict and strife that we have with each other as fellow human beings, it does celebrate something that I think is essential in Tolkien's work, which is fellowship, friendship, recognition of the goodness in each other and to fight for that. And that that's important. Yeah. And like I said, maybe I, earlier where I was sort of saying the tone of the, of the debate, the tone of the discussion was to me a bit alarming and disappointing. Obviously, I'm a bit, maybe I'm a bit on my high horse about it. But I do think that, I think that created a lot of noise to what you're saying is that noise created, right. I think, interest. And it was definitely a sign that people were paying attention. You know, Amazon spent a lot of money on first the rights to the property. They spent a lot of money on the production. You can see that for the most part, you know, I think it's executed generally quite well. But yeah, I think for me, because it's Tolkien, just like everything else, it's become a much more of a divisive topic. And, and even he's becoming more divisive within, to your point, the era we now live in in terms of social media, the internet, where the conversation is not just two-way, it is like a barroom brawl half the time, right? So I just, for me, I don't, I, it's not that that's like sad. I just think for me, it, it's not where I think I hope we can get to. And, and I think... It's not where the material inspires us to go. Not you and I, anyways. I think that, like you said, we hope that it would be sort of something that people would be nicer to one another about it. You know, we both watched the first season. It's been a year since we watched it. We are in a rewatch the first season of Rings of Power. They are currently, I believe they've shot everything. Uh, they, I don't know if they're doing any post-shoots, but they're in some form of post-production now, especially since the actor strike has ended, that they can go back and sort of bring the second season more to completion. But my understanding is that the main primary production is and shooting is done. Sweet. Yeah. So I believe we're going to see the second season this fall of 2024, next fall. So a year from now, I think is when it is. So we're checking in the halfway point between when it was made. There are a lot of podcasts out there. You and I listen to and other people didn't. And we're not doing this. This is actually not a podcast about Rings of Power. It's really just about Tolkien in general. And we were actually interested in other things like technology and its importance. So I guess without further ado, let's go ahead and let's go back to season one and episode one of The Rings of Power. Right. We might record some of our reactions while we're watching it. Nothing is evil in the beginning. And there was a time when the world was so young, there had not yet been a sunrise. But even then, there was light. What devilry is this? These orcs were meddling with the powers of the unseen world. 
Some dark sorcery it holds. Yeah, I mean, he's called the Necromancer, but you never really see. Surely it's lost to the ages now. It's a result of whatever happened here. Necromancer. Well, it's kind of interesting in terms of what it's going to like. It's not just about invisibility, but there's the unseen world, which is like basically the Wraith world. Yeah. Wraithland. I guess the ring wraiths are the only evidence of necromancy. Stone cannot hide the mark upon his very hand. Okay, so interesting. Watching that all and on your. this theater in the studio. Hmm. It has much more impact, and I will... It was interesting talking about the opening. I now kind of understand better what they're trying to do here. And, and again, just giving this show the ability to tell its story and the way that it's going to tell it. It has some definite call-outs to the Peter Jackson stuff, right? With yeah. Elijah being the narrator. But I think that's part of what made me mental distance I was having a little bit, was like, you know, that... Lord of the Rings has this big opener with this whole retelling of the last alliance of elves and men, and and it's very action-packed. It doesn't have this kind of same level of kind of sadness that this has with Gladiol. Right. And that's interesting, because I think that made it feel a bit kind of mopey to me, the beginning of it. Mm. And I, I still don't, like, maybe love every aspect of it, but to your point, the whole thing, that opening scene is the light. This is like a part two of the opening. This is right. the dark. And so they're putting the light in the dark. It's like this is the microcosm of, of those two themes right. right here in the opening of the prologue. And right. it is a bigger prologue than what is in the Fellowship of the Ring, actually, Peter Jackson film. Right. That is a faster, quicker. It's very much, as they've always said, Peter Jackson said he was inspired by the openings of the James Bond movies. Right. It's action-packed. It is pedal to the metal. Well, those are also... That's an opening to a movie, which is different than an opening to a TV series. That's right, yeah. And the other thing about this is that was an opening for the broader story of all of the characters. And this this is basically Galadriel's story. Yeah. And so it's much more personal, and we're getting more emotional yeah. with it. And the, there's more of the feels there. Yeah, there's more of the feels there. Yeah, totally. And I, you know, I don't love, like, that Lieutenant Elf or whatever he... But you're not supposed to. Yeah, that's what I'm realizing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the whole idea. But you're I... also not... You don't love Galadriel either, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. we all know where she is by the time we see her in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And we know that she's going to get there at some point. Yeah. But it's I like... I mean, they're all pretty... All these elves are pretty whiny. You know what? I just this reminds me of Back to the Future, where when the character goes back in time and meets his parents, his parents are totally different than who they are when he's like growing up with them as parents. Yeah, and they're like obnoxious, they're bratty, they smoke, they do all these things that you don't like. You know, they have yeah. all these you know qualities that you don't like about them. Yeah, because they're teenagers, right? Yeah. yeah. But then you know, in the future where he grows up, his the character's like, oh, the parents are like normal adults and doing good things and being good people right so yeah it's kind of like that like we're seeing the teenager version of galadriel before she becomes who she is you know um the other things i i am kind of I'm not loving finrod's battle stuff again so petty right but i want to get this out there because what i'm trying to get is that your reaction to stuff is so subjective and when it's works that are so beloved and people have mentally 
their imaginations have walked in these worlds so much when it doesn't yeah. comport with your experience and the movie in your head, people get really like, they have a real problem switching onto that, those train tracks. And so I'm just, what I'm pointing out here is that's like, the inevitable are, problem with any yeah, adaptation. adaptation. But I think this, as we've taught, this is like a special kind of adaptation because there's less of the things that's, Oh, I, that resonates with me because I've read that or I know that part of the story because there's less of that. Those sort of things that are little chinks for me, right? Stand out more. Stand out even more. Yeah. And so, so the the other one is so there, there's that. I don't, don't kind of love how Finra's face looks. So I don't know when he's screaming and stuff. It just feels over the top to me. And then there's the part where I said I don't like the elf lieutenant. But you've kind of given me a good reason why that's okay. I think the other thing is uh, the Keebler elf. <laughs> the Keebler elf. <laughs> No, we just talked about it. Lieutenant Keebler, I was not... I guess I... Uh, yeah, so I'll just have to, li- have to live with that. Nothing against the actor or anything like that. It's just... What are your things about it? Oh. This is really important, the prologue, the opening. I think I've, I've watched... I've noticed a lot of people talk about it. I don't know. I mean, it's doing all... It's, it's, it's checking all the boxes off, and it's not doing it in a way that makes me feel like, oh, they're just checking all the boxes off. I'm still interested in watching it, right? And I'm getting the information I need. I'm getting the exposition I need. It's setting up the story. Uh, it's asking questions that I want to be answered later. So that's good. I don't know. It's fun. So when they get there and they're in the this abandoned castle fort, you said mentioned I want to get into a little bit more about the unseen sort of thing about the necromancy. Yeah, I think it, that's actually pretty cool. I think what they're getting at there is something that's not really expressed in... In, in, any, in, in a few different places that you can sort of take from it. Maybe they take some liberties. I don't know. I don't feel like they have because there's there's a lot there that's kind of left unsaid that they had the room. And I don't think they did anything that was overstepping, but showing what looked like looked like an orc. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something else, but it's embedded in rock, like it's coming out of the rock. Mm-hmm. So almost like coming out of the ore, coming out of the earth. Something with some sort of basically mad science, evil science experiments happening happen there in which some sort of spirit from the dead or from another world or a demon right. is coming and pushing through from another dimension, the living dimension. And maybe that dimension is always there. So I want to bring that up here for a moment because this whole idea of the unseen and the seen is part of Tolkien's world. And he talks about you know, th- this wraith world, right? Right. And, and sort of part of our show in the blog that I've named as Wraith Lands. Yeah. And it's partly inspired by that. Partly a play, a tip of the hat to the world of, that we're living in with technology, right? And the internet, right. data, and all this stuff that's happening. It's a little yes. bit of a play on that we're living in a world in which there's this other, these are the other entities right. that are in our world that are shaping our lives. The digital ether. Right. And we always had knowledge before, and we've had data before, and we've had books. and Yeah. And so it's, it's sort of the world of the spirit or the mind becoming more embodied, right? So so I think that's I think that's interesting that they're establishing that. And I guess maybe what I'm thinking is that's important because it's getting a little bit more into what is really some of the other stuff behind the ring and what it represents. Right. That we don't necessarily get in the Peter Jackson films. Yes. We see, we see, like, we get the ring vision at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frodo puts on his rings a couple, the ring. Yeah, he goes into the wraith dimension. But this is showing, you never really see, I mean, you see a lot of 
you know, occult kind of right. spooky stuff in those movies. But this one and this episode is called a shadow of the past. Right. So what that is, is some kind of, right. There's a lot of layers to that, right? A lot of layers to that, yeah. So I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah. And I think they did that pretty well with like the anvil and, and the ice. And so shall we continue? Yes. Look like a badger. Maybe a fox. More likely a half foot. Half foot? Uh, don't care to be saying none. But if you do, watch yourself. Dangerous creatures they are. Don't make any hook. <laughs> Come on, rattle your dags. Let's just get to that ape before sundown. That's like straight out of Brian Froud's book on fairies. Gnomes. Crack, and this washing away the last remnants of our enemy. I like this part. Spring yeah. rain all over the bones of a dead animal. Spring rain on the bones of. Harold Elrond. At last. It's almost as if I didn't wish to be found. Or tired. She's great. The council regrets to inform you you won't be permitted to attend the next session. Elf Lords only. So, some, some bigotry in the, yes. the high, high kingdom. Oh, yeah. She's here. Interesting. I like that. Yeah. I like this music. I think it's. This is all great. But I tell you, the same certain should continue. We foresaw that if it had, she might have inadvertently kept alive the very evil she sought to defeat. See? Well, the same wind that seeks to blow out a fire may also cause its spread. Right. So we just finished episode one, A Shadow of the Past, season one, Rings of Power. We did. It's fun. I surely it was great to get back to it after a year and kind of like distance myself from some of the initial conversations that were going on uh, during the time and just sort of let it be and I st- you know, I still liked it, and I, I didn't have any... I felt like it was it was right as rain, maybe, is a good way of putting it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think that... Um, I didn't think it was perfect, but, you know... Yeah, I think, you know, I think what a lot of people are sort of... Yeah, I think... I don't think... I, I don't love it. I know, and I'm pretty sure as we continue to watch, because we're going to do... You know, we're going to watch all the episodes from the season. Right. I'm pretty sure I want to similar place I did, you know, which was I felt pretty strongly that they there was a lot more good there than 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 bad and I think some of the stuff is really great. I think the first episode to me is is a little bit I think one thing I would say is that it's very ethereal, very atmospheric, very elegiac, uh, very romantic, and those are all very Tolkien things. And I think in that regard it shares with the Peter Jackson movies a few things, which is that, you know, they're 
It's epic. It's got some moodiness. It's deep, you know, and it has, it's immersive. But I think the things that Peter Jackson movies have that this doesn't happen, I think it's maybe a difference between the TV medium and the film medium and that they're still finding what's the Tolkien like TV kind of um, metabolism equilibrium. But the PJ stuff is, you know, it's, it's more visceral. It's generally a lot more funny, has a lot more slapstick because it's a movie. Right. It's a lot more action packed because it's a movie. So it's more, you know, more compact. Right. And it's a little bit more rousing in that regard. And I think this is a, this is a TV series that hasn't totally found its rhythm yet. It's just, it's just starting to f- play the first melodies, you know? Yeah. And it dips a little bit more into melodrama. Yeah. Which yeah. is fine for television. Yeah. The, the whole stuff between, um, I think comes some of the stuff that you and I really, really both, really like about it is Elrond and Galadriel. Their yeah. whole interaction I think is really great. I think we both you know, we both like Galadriel. We think that her character she is more dramatized and melodramatized than maybe yeah. what people are maybe thinking, but I don't think they're taking really ma- that many liberties with it. I think yeah. she is supposed to be this Amazonian, you know, very strong you know, she is one of the great leaders of her people and she's going to go on a journey and she was rebellious in her quote unquote youth. That is very clear in the Cimmerian and some of his other posthumously published works. So I think that's really like, I think that's, I like that. I think they made the right choice to base the series on her. Right. I think they made the right choice to the whole thing about light and dark. Yeah. That is just that is Tolkien to a, you know, that's mythology. That's all sorts of stories. And that's just the sun rises and the sun goes down and right. and that's primal, right? right? And that's mythology. So I think watching the second time, I got that this time understanding, oh, they really are kind of dramatizing that in a way that is a lot more than maybe, like Peter Jackson has it in there, but they just don't have as much time in a film. So it has that kind of, that energy, you know, I'm, I'm sort of with my fist right now kind of doing like, it's, it's got, it's, it got a beat and the pace and it's driving, faster at driving. driving so this is a little bit more like, it's a little more like again ethereal. It's a little bit yeah. more like an o- opening overture. It's galloping versus meandering. Yeah, meandering. So, so that's and, and that makes the show. I think, and then some of these is a little bit more immersive. Mm-hmm. And to your point about meandering, one of the things that a lot of people complain is that they kept on changing stories on these storylines. So it is meandering. It is having these different interweaving right. fabrics. It's and th- th- there's a big theme about water in this first thing about about the, the ocean. And so there's this thing about waves. And so. There's a lot of wave tips in this story right now. So it feels interesting way of putting it. Yeah. Wave tips. <laughs> a little bit of wa- I mean, then in the very end, she jumps in the water. Yeah, and no, I, like I think there's this thing that is a little bit like that. There's a little bit almost like I feel like I'm in, like her character at the end. I feel like I'm, I am a little bit sort of my head is under the water and coming up a little bit and under the water and kind of up a little bit. Like I'm this, this series so far feels a little bit, the first episode feels a little bit like I'm kind of in the Tolkien unconscious a little bit. And it feels a little bit formless and a little bit weird at times and a little bit where are we really going? But as you and I talked about before, they don't have a lot to work with. So I think they are working with the archetypes. In yeah. A way, but I think and they're also going with some of the sort of tropey norms of drama. Right. Like that the relationships uh with uh uh Arondir? Arondir, yeah. That and, you know, some of the the stereotypical like oppressed people reaction and right. Knife ears. Pointies. Pointies. You know, pointies. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff. But that's I think that's okay. That's you know It's T V, right? But you're right. You're right. It's it's sort of like 
it's got a broad spectrum of ways it's expressing drama. So you get this sort of more closer to sort of Shakespearean path with Galadriel yeah. and her journey, and then that sort of more pedestrian path of the men in the um, village, and then the in between. You know, sort of thing for like analogy of Tolkien. It, it reminds me a little bit of like the middle part of the Cimmerian. The middle part of the Cimmerian get, kind of gets like this. It's like it, Tolkien is jumping all over the place. It was published after he died, so I think these were some things he was trying to work out. And it's interesting because I think they're picking up a lot of the threads of the Cimmerian. Like I said about this, this kind of unconscious sort of dream escape, dream world aspect of this, which I think is right there in the opening scene with them being in Valinor. It is high on the high fantasy, yes. I would say. And I guess what some people are not grokking to, you know, there's, there's the famous thing about not another, you know, F and elf that one of the Inklings said to Tolkien who was reading about it. This is heavy on the elves, you know, and you and I love the elves, right. but a lot of our love for the elves is like Legolas and then what's in the Cimmerian. This is, we made some jokes as we were watching about Keepler elves. Because <laughs> yeah. it, it, well, it, it, it is my, pretty heavy on the elves. You know, they got the, they don't have any sideburns. Yeah. There's a little bit of this. I don't, that aesthetic, I think, is a, a stylistic choice that that works for me and it doesn't really bother me. But I think it's interesting, actually. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not making fun of it. No, I actually no. think it's, it, it is, gives them this slightly otherworldly. I'm trying to put my finger on it. I don't know what it is yet. Well, one thing, one point I want to make that something you said made me think about is like my initial, when I was a kid and I read The Hobbit and then a little bit older, The Lord of the Rings, the way the elves were portrayed in those stories is like, oh, these magical beings that are like really cool and like, oh, wouldn't it be great to see an elf? You know, like uh, that awe of that and the wonder and like, oh, it's like you're lucky if you get to see one, you know? Yeah. That is sort of the way I kind of felt about the elves when I was reading about them in the, in the books, like, oh, they're really cool. But I could see maybe other people not thinking about them that way. One of the things I like about the way they're portrayed in this show is that they're like, they're making them more sort of normal. <laughs> they have faults. They're, they're against their pride. That stuff comes through a little bit more and they're more dimensional than just yeah. magical beings that are in the forest that you are lucky if you see, or maybe unlucky if you run into, yeah. you know? Well, and I think that's something you and I talked about the, the annoying lieutenant elf and the, you're like, you point out like, I think it's, that character is intentionally meant to be a little bit that way and a little bit petulant, a little bit, a little bit kind of, but um, also the voice of reason condescending, but the way that it's presented is like, but, ah, uh. <laughs> well, but your point to you, Galadriel's that way too. And so there's, there's a little bit of like the elves, but they're a little bit full of themselves, right? And yeah. So you and I both really like the Elrond scene when he's introduced. We both think Robert Armile's awesome. Yes. Like I so said, I think most, I think all the cast is actually really good. Yes. And, but he's, he is, particularly good in that scene and the music and he's there right so that whole thing where he's writing his speech and he's talking about the spring rain and yeah. the washing of the carcass and stuff like it, watching this with you again and maybe and watching it with another Tolkien fan I think is where I was able to put my finger on that I think that is intentionally meant to be a bit this meta goofy kind of meta like they are pretentious the elves are a little pretentious and right. and here Elrond is writing this he's young He's not as wise as he's going to be at some point. Right. So he's writing this pretentious stuff that he maybe doesn't, you know, doesn't, I mean, he understands it, but it, it just feels like, and he's kind of crossing. So he's really working hard on yeah, it. Yeah. You know, he is the writer. And I thought, I thought that was a really neat kind of tip of the hat of the showrunners. Cause this overall, they have a team of writers, but right. the main writers are JD Payne and Patrick McKay, who are these young writers who Hollywood is, 
you know, saying they're good, they're not good. A lot of Toki fans saying that, you know, are upset with them. They have been very open to the fact that they feel that this is a heavy burden that they're carrying, yeah. but their excitement was there. And I, one thing I want to say is that I think that their choice, their, the most important choices are right. Yes. And, and I think that's the thing, w- you know, the we, themes, the wh- ideas. Yeah. yeah. Whether, whether the execution is, is, you know, top A grade, absolutely perfect. Is this the best TV, best sort ever? Whether even if it's good or not, mm-hmm. I think it's really that the themes that they're grappling with are the right ones or very interesting. Yeah. And they're actually very relevant right now. So I think that's one thing that, that watching this again and watching it a year later is very apparent. I think to the both of us, right? Yeah. Well, it goes back to the idea that like what inspired Tolkien, I think, to write about mythology and mythos and human experience, I think is it's touching on sort of universal truths and universal archetypes and feelings and maybe you might call it the collective unconscious. And he's, you know, echoing things from the past, but now they're being echoed again from him in our time. And it's cool to sort of see that. Yeah. You know, well and then see today. And then historic and the events that are happening right now. Yeah. Which we're gonna talk about in a little bit, but but I'm staying on this thing about Elrond and his speech. Elrond! Like, <laughs> so the whole part where Gilgalad gives his speech, and I pronounce it Gilgalad as you do, Gilgalad, some people like, but the whole part where he's kind of, and he, he's a little bit pompous too. He's like, ah, he's like raising his arms, oh, yeah, you know? Yeah, it is, it is, it is, but it's meant to be. I think it's meant to be. I think it's meant to be. And I think that's one thing is maybe people had a hard time with it. But that because scene was so incredible because the subtext of it was just great. It's like, What's, here, we're going to throw this party to celebrate and make, you know, it look like you won, but really it's a punishment. And, but it's going to have all the trappings of a celebration and we're going to announce to the world that we won. You know, it's our victory speech and our victory day, but it really is not for the natural. Yeah. It's a punishment, really. Mm-hmm. And she can't do, she's like, stop. You don't follow your heart. Yeah. You're being punished. You've already put us through enough with your single minded quest yeah get out of here yeah go home yeah and he's younger than galadriel yeah that's also gotta hurt i mean i don't know if the writers now that you're saying is is i think it's reconfirming that and that's the thing, thing there's not a lot of consensus about the show it's so new the yeah. stories are so new and i think we know that they did their research so that of course the writers know that galadriel is much older than gilgalad right right and so you have gilgalad here basically telling her in his own to your point subtle way I'm going to tell you how it is, yeah. and and I'm going to punish you, and you, it's time to go home, grandma, or whatever he's thinking, yeah, right? Yeah. And and then boomer, <laughs> boomer, <laughs> and then Elrond is there, and he's reading a speech about the spring rain, like a spring rain washing, you know, a rotten carcass, and and then it shows, it shows Elrond's face, and he's like. Yeah, that's a good line. That sounds so good. And we, the audience, are like, that sounds terrible. And I mean, I am thinking but that. But it cuts to Galadriel looking at him like, you wrote this shit? <laughs> like, and yeah. he's all smirking. And then right, she's like, Gilgalad looks at him, too. He's like, I'm saying what you wrote me. <laughs> he's like, I guess, uh, all right. All right, I'll say it. You know, yeah. Well, and I think that's the thing, too, because she's probably just like, I can't believe I'm going through this to some yeah. degree. Because... Yeah. This, and this is going to be the part that you, when we're watching it, you were sort of, this is really important. The part where he's talking about, you know, the thing that seeks out to put out the fire can actually spread it and make it worse. Yeah. And that's after she's left and she's out. Because Elrond, to some degree, is like, he feels for her. But but right. Google is basically like, 
look, I know you love her as a friend, and yeah. and he does too. We we know yeah. that, but he's like, this is for her own good, yeah. and and we have to do this because of this. But at this I point, definitely has consumed the uh, Kool Aid. Yeah, he's definitely had the Kool Aid, the yeah. Gilgalad Kool Aid. Yeah, he's on Team Gilgalad. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, this is what's best for yeah Galadriel. This is what's best for Galadriel. Yeah, I think what's interesting because I'm thinking about this too about the theme about the seen and the unseen. What's interesting about that is that Ilgalad probably has more of a sense than Elrond does that that Sauron is potentially out there, and he's like, "Look, you may be just making worse, and you just right. you know, I, I can't, you're a loose cannon, so I need you to kind of go." Right. But I think what's interesting is is that he maybe doesn't believe it as much as she does, and the ultimate thing is that she's ultimately right. He is out there. Right. He is plotting. She does see what they don't see. So this whole thing about seen and sight, this yeah. whole thing about seen and unseen, is a is a theme they establish in that first opening prologue with things being underwater, things being above the water, light and darkness, seeing the orc or demon coming out of that rock, right, mm-hmm. and the unseen world and the seen world, and that's very much about the ring. And the ring if, is about, if anything, about more than anything, is about deception, right? It's about it's about being blinded. She talks about that in the forest about. Being blinded. So it's a very literate show. It is a very smart show, actually, right. seeing it again. And the more you and I talk about, it, the more I think the challenge is, that is dramatizing that and doing it in a way in which people are shown versus told is I think they haven't quite, it's the first season. So it's a little bit all over the place. Yeah. It's a some bit, things yeah. Are, are, are told and not yeah. shown, and some things are shown and not yeah. told. And then, but you kind of have to do that too. Right. You know, so I, I think, I think part of it is just that it, on some level, it's so new that it's hard. I think that's why it feels at times I'm I'm in a forest a little bit with the show, right? You know, so that part with oh, and then Celebrimbor shows up. So what was your take? What was your fit when he shows up and he oh, shows the Keebler <laughs> elf? Another Keebler elf? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I there's a little. No, no, yeah. no. I think I know it was. It, I think they did a great job at sort of representing him as like a a, a, a celebrity. You know, yeah. I was like, ooh. I get, yeah. he's here. Whoa. Yeah. Not only do you get to work with him, but he's here and you could talk to him. It's yeah. like, he's like the Steve Jobs kind of like. Well, and he um, just, does he even say anything? I don't think he even says anything. He just kind of smiles and he's like, yeah. Ooh, I'm here. Yeah. Which is interesting. And to that, he's going to be a very important character. Obviously. Right. Um, we meet him in, in the next episode. So we'll, we watch that. We'll talk about it. But yeah, you, you mentioned Keebler. I want to stand up for a moment because there's a certain thing about the aesthetic. We've talked about the the sideburns, but you're the one who brought up the Keebler. And after you said that, I was like, I just keep seeing Keebler everywhere. <laughs> well, it's it's just it's, it's a little bit. But but back to the 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 thing that I think maybe they are they are trying to show the elves as a little bit. They are a little bit corrupted. Isn't the wrong word. No, they're but just, they're a little high in their own supply. Yeah, yeah. You know and. But that's uh, and that's, that's a reminder accurate. for us, yeah. And that's a reminder for a lot of Tolkien fans, including us, not to get high on our own supply. But but I think for people who know nothing about the show, I imagine my wife doesn't have any. I think some people like that, some people don't. You know, right? But I think that there is something about the aesthetics too. I think some of it's really good. Some of it is the production design and the, and the outfits are. Not, but you know, I had the same thing with the PJ films. I like parts of Rivendell, but it definitely some reviewers when the Peter Jackson movies came out criticized a little bit of like what's the name of the painter Kincaid Thomas Kincaid paintings. Oh right. You know that it had a little bit too much of this twee sort of stuff you would find in like a hobby store, you know, in right. parts of, in a mall, an American mall, and and I think this doesn't have that actually to its credit. Right. I think they toned some of that down to this to this credit. Right. But I think there's other things. 
that were they, they definitely went with a little bit more of a high medieval look, which I think on some ways can be really cool. John Hal sort of brings that together with some like the knight armor that the, the elves have. Yeah. yeah. It's, it feels a little bit like I'm watching Excalibur again a little bit, which I'm not, right. you know, it's, it makes it feel a little bit dated to me because I think Peter Jackson, but, but I but also, also always love all of Peter Jackson's stuff. So, but I mean, it, it also like, if you think about it in the context of Middle Earth and Lord of the Rings, it is, it is the ancient armor of that era. So it is kind of like their, their yeah. older stuff, you know. The production generally is very good, but one thing I would say tonally, you love that stuff. Oh, cool. I think that overall did really well. But there are times where it does feel like TV production wise, but it is better than I think most TV I see out there. I was just watching the latest season of For All Mankind, which started off pretty strong as a show, and the the set design is not holding up as far as I'm concerned. And so, as much as people, some people sort of felt like, where did all the money that Amazon spent on the show? Go well. They spent about half of it just to get the rights, I think, actually. Yeah. But I think actually the quality production. So I'm very, I'm very interested to see what they do with the second season because they moved it from New Zealand to England, and I wonder if that's going to be good or bad with the, with, on the as far as the production quality. So okay, so then there's that part with Elrond, and he's saying about the fire and the spreading. What was what was the thing there that that was really important to you? I feel like it's a really key line. Oh, because I think it, he's he's kind of right. It like. For me, it, 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 it pointed to the possibility that Galadriel is the source and the reason why Sauron comes back. And it's a tragedy almost in the tradition that Tolkien has already participated in and shown in like Turin and stuff like that. It's an archetype of storytelling where that way you try to prevent, the harder you try to prevent it from coming to be, the more it comes to be, you know, yeah. it's just like, it's yeah. a, a curse. Yes. Yeah, and like, for Macbeth. Yes. Yeah, and for it to be Galadriel, for that to take place for Galadriel as a character in the Tolkien universe, it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of profound to me. It's like, wow, that's, that's really heavy because of who she is later. All of this is because of her. And it makes total sense in, in hindsight, but it's like, oh, that's, that makes the tragedy even that all that much more tragic for her you know and well i think a lot of people had a problem with that and that that's going to become more pronounced in the subsequent episodes but a lot of you a lot of people see Gladys as much more of her perfect you know, virgin mary type of figure which she is partly i think tolkien is has some there's some resonance of that i think like you and i've talked before Gladys very much is i think associated whether unconsciously or consciously from knowing about his biography i think she is very much one of his favorite characters, because I think she does represent on some level his mother, mm-hmm. who was a huge influence on him. Right. His love of language, his love of learning, his love of, of nature was very much instilled in him from his mother. Mm-hmm. And he lost her at a young age. She was like 12. So I think, I think there's something there about how important she has a character. And if we were to go into his biography, you know, Galadriel's an interesting character, right? She, Tolkien's own mother, they, they moved to South Africa, right? That's where they started their family, right? And then she took, I think it was her decision, and I believe, to take both Jared Tolkien and his brother Hillary Tolkien back to England to see the family. And while they were there, his father got sick and died. And so I'm not saying that's in any way. I'm just saying it's interesting, again, about universal experience, right? Right. That's not why Arthur Tolkien died, but but she wasn't there for him, and they were not. In some ways, maybe they all survived because they weren't there, because he died of a rheumatoid fever, which is like a crazy fear inflammation of the body but but i think it's just interesting to kind of think about these dynamics right and and to your point about that's profound 
the idea about Galadriel being the one that basically by trying to put the fire out kicks the log, you know, into the brush and sets a, a whole forest on fire. Right. Um, Which is what Gilgalad is like foreseeing as a possibility. And it's like, yeah. maybe, you know, we shouldn't be poking the bear. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like she has no choice given the oath that she, you know, it's, it goes back another theme that comes up in the Silmarillion a lot are oaths. And she made an oath to complete this task. That her brother, that yeah. brother started. That's that's a key element of the prologue that I think really informs the rest of the season. And if you if you accept that, then then you understand her a lot better. <laughs> well, that, that, that gets the, that gets the theme of family, right? Yeah. And when the it becomes much more personal at that point when Finrod. I mean, you know, in the similar, she's already lost. This she lost not, not just Finrod. She loses her two other brothers actually, yeah. Angrod and Agnor. Which they, they don't talk about, and I guess because probably didn't have the rights to Cimmerillion. <laughs> but but yeah, those are the ones that. So it's not just that she's lost Finrod; she's actually lost three brothers, and she's lost cousins, and she's lost. Uh, she ends up losing an uncle. She's lost much more than just a brother, right. actually, in Cimmerillion. So there's actually more it's justification for her emotional. Well, right, and that comes through. Of, and also, like we didn't know what death was before, and now we yeah, know. We yeah. have many words for it. Yeah. So we want to talk about. I think that's implied in this first episode. But we don't get to a little bit later and really don't see it really much till later in the thing. But this, the show is called The Rings of Power and they called it a, sh- a shadow of the past. There's a chapter in the Lord of the Rings called The Shadow of the Past. And that is a very important chapter in the Fellowship of the Ring that establishes the whole background and history of Sauron. And it's in that chapter we learn about Celebrimbor and all these sort of people. So it's very important that we meet the characters, Gilgalad. We meet Celebrimbor, right? We go to some sort of forge. Or smithy, smithworks where somebody, of course, at Sauron was there trying to make something, mm-hmm. trying to bridge this reality with the Wraith world right. or Shadow world that he's trying to bring. What's the tap into that magic in that energy? Yeah. And so Morgoth's gone, but he's continuing. And so that's really important. And the title of the, of the, the episode, I think, is pretty well done. I think it's a good title. But it gets this whole theme that not a lot of people know who are not as familiar with Tolkien, but Tolkien used himself in letters when talking about the books later on, was about the machine. Mm-hmm. So, light and darkness, yes. But the theme of the machine is very important to him. And has a lot to do with like, his life experience. So, so did he write about these in letters too? Like, how did... Is, are these in books published? Or? They're in books published. Um, some of their letters to his son, Christopher Tolkien, to World War II, and just sort of understanding that... Spells out the machine is a metaphor, or like literally a machine, a symbol for technology in general? It's literally a machine, technology in general. And so I was just kind he of... He has thoughts? He has thoughts on it. And so if we're to go to that a number of writers and scholars have written about that but it's not always focused on but i think it's really important because going back to i think them choosing the right theme mm-hmm. okay this is interesting right the writers and the, and the show's coming made by amazon studios jeff bezos right um, a lot of people sort of point out like well this is like this mega billionaire there's things to criticize about amazon so why is this because there's that right it's, it's a mega big tech corporate enterprises mm-hmm. show of course you have there's a lot of tech people are interested in Tolkien. You have sort of these echoes and the far right in Italy, them really sort of trying to wrap their arms around Tolkien, right? With Maloney in Italy. Yeah. So it's an interesting time. So, but I think it's very topical because what is Tolkien really getting at? 
I think, you know, putting aside what his exact politics were or not, I think he lived through and he experienced and he actually was on in the Battle of the Somme, which was the most deadly battle in the history of the, the English and the British. He lived through World War II. All three of his sons served in World War II. One was in the Battle of Britain, as I think, uh, I believe he was part of the artillery units that were trying to take down the, the German blitzkrieg um, in the sky. He had another son that was a chaplain who later became a priest. So he was helping emotionally, spiritually serving troops. And then his youngest son, Christopher Tolkien, who ended up in the Royal Air Force and ended up being stationed in Africa, actually. So it's really kind of, he went through all the emotions of the turmoil that the Industrial Revolution brought both good things right. and bad things. Right. And one of the bad things you could say was that it made warfare that much more deadly, that much more destructive, right? Right. So he ended up writing at one point, what do you mean? Writing to a friend in 1951, Jared Tolkien said, and I quote, by the last, he says, what, what did he mean by the machine? So by the last, I intend all use of external plans or devices, apparatus, instead of development of the inherent inner powers or talents, or even the use of these talents with the corrupted motive of dominating, bulldozing the real world, or coercing other wills. The machine, with a capital M, he uses here, is our more obvious modern form, though more closely related to magic, also capitalized, the capital M, than is usually recognized. Mm. The enemy, with a capital E, in successive forms is always naturally concerned with sheer domination, with a capital D. And so the Lord of Magic, the Lord of Magic, with a capital L. And machines. Ah, so Sauron is a lord of magic and that machines. That's that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, I'll send that to you. So that's he's, just so, something I've like always responded one, to as an idea, but it's no. He actually, he actually, he actually wrote about it. so. So one of the things we're we're going to be doing on the show is consulting today's Oracle, the artificial intelligence resource known as ChatGPT. You know, in mythology, there's always these seers, these mystics, and you have the Oracle of Delphi in Greek mythology. In the Lord of the Rings, you have you have the Mirror of Galadriel. Uh, I'm not saying the chat GPT is those things. This is its own modern day thing. But it's interesting, you know, if you read about l large language models and how they're modeled on uh, languages and a lot of all the different uh, text out there on the internet and how they become these predictive models of thought and how words are very important to how we think and neural networks there's something i think there's something there we'll talk about some other time but spells are magic magic right. words that are spelled how is sauron's ring of power related to tolkien's theme about the machine Ooh, good one i can't wait to find out yeah so this is what it came back this is what came back at us this is what saxon right now this is what's writing right now okay all right J.R.R. tolkien's work particularly the Lord of the Rings, explores various themes, including the theme of industrialization and the negative impact of unchecked technological advancement. This theme is often referred to as the machine in Tolkien scholarship. While it's essential to note that Tolkien did not explicitly outline a direct allegory between specific elements in his stories and real-world issues, there are interpretations that suggest connections. Sauron's Ring of Power, known as the One Ring, can be seen as a symbol of power, control, and corruption. The forging of the ring is linked to the industrial processes of the Dark Lord Sauron, 
who employs his knowledge and skill and craft to create a powerful and malevolent artifact. The ring represents the pinnacle of Sauron's technological achievements and his desire for dominance over Middle-earth. In the broader context of Tolkien's themes, the ring can be interpreted as a manifestation of the destructive consequences of unchecked technological progress and the lust for power. The One Ring corrupts those who seek to possess it, and it becomes a tool of domination and control. This mirrors Tolkien's concerns about the dehumanizing effects of industrialization and the potential for technology to be wielded in ways that harm the natural world and individual freedoms. While the connection between the Ring of Power and the theme of the machine is a matter of interpretation, many scholars and readers find parallels between Tolkien's cautionary themes about power, technology, and industrialization, and the narrative elements in The Lord of the Rings. End. Response. So, That's, what do you uh, get from that? I don't know. I mean, it's pretty impressive that a machine can spit that out. <laughs> yeah. But it's also like, you know, you wouldn't be surprised if, he, you know, if someone else, you asked a person that question and they gave you that answer. It's not... It's, it's not a very complex answer, but it's, uh, I think it's a good answer and it's accurate for the most part of what I was thinking would be the answer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think the, I think what it just lays out is that, again, we read that letter that Tolkien wrote himself. So obviously it's pulling some of this information. It's out there. Scholars have written about it. And I think one of the reasons why I think watching this first episode again is resonant because just this past, Friday, uh, the time of recording this, uh, our first episode. Madness. Uh, Open AI, which is a year ago, most people had never even heard about it. Now everybody knows about Open AI or anybody who's really kind of paying attention to technology and what's happening in the world. And it is the first really public, self identified artificial intelligence product mm -hmm. with a web interface that people can inter inter interface with and ask questions and get back what are very complex, supple, interesting responses. Everything from this, which is a bit of a summary response, right. to, to getting this back in the form of a poem, to getting jokes, there's humor. There's all sorts of really uh, interesting things that are happening, and this is really, it is magic. Right. We're at the cutting edge of, of what is going to change the world uh, in a way that we don't understand right now. We'll look back at this one day and go, oh, <laughs> that's yeah. kind of what it was doing. Yeah. But, you know, the potential there, as we said before, it's looking at for patterns that we can't recognize with our simple brains, like in medicine, for instance, to predict disease and prevent it. That's incredible. But it also could be used, you know, potentially to promote propaganda and fake news in such a way that is believable. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, in the hands of the wrong, the wrong actors, you know, the wrong people. And, and yeah, and, you know, the human... The human mind is not simple, but it's, it's, this is, it is, you know, they talk about, there's a term, an acronym called AGI, which is artificial general intelligence, which is getting to something that basically has the versatility, the capacity that is a human intelligence, as well as I think some attest, attach that sort of almost like a self-awareness, like a sentience, a conscience, and a consciousness that uh, these, once we were at a point where an AGI is almost like it, it's like it wakes up and is aware of itself, that it is an entity. 
And uh, there's predictions that could happen as soon as in the next 10 years. So that's pretty interesting. That's pretty wild. You know, when I was in college or younger reading science fiction, this is, you know, everybody talks about Skynet or there's Tron, there's, you know, a lot, there's Neuromancer. There's, you know, this is a topic that's been in science fiction and even before science fiction. Again, we're reading here, Lord of the Rings, you know, to some degree, Tolkien is not talking about artificial intelligence specifically, but the ring of power is something in, it is in the book. The ring is almost like it's sentient, like it's alive. It has, right. Tolkien writes about it as if it is self-aware and it has a will. Yeah. And, and that is something that Peter Jackson brings to the fore a little bit in the movies. And it's definitely in the book. So, so I think there's, you know, there's a lot of interesting kind of parallels and resonances and echoes. I think one of the things that going back to, to Gilgalad and his warning and his, his discussion with Elrond about the fire being spread when you're trying to put it out. So this past weekend, there's this just incredible drama going on with OpenAI and uh, the CEO, Sam Altman, who's this fairly, you know, he's eloquent. Uh, he's this very important figure in Silicon Valley and he is quite young. Uh, he's not even 40 yet. And he has been very instrumental in, in sort of co-founding OpenAI which Elon Musk was involved with very early on. And they've got this very interesting structure where they're trying to, they know that this technology could be so powerful that we need to be careful. Now, is that science fiction? I don't know. You, you think about a movie like Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 in a Space Odyssey, and you think about how and how that computer goes, kind of malfunctions and has a nervous breakdown in space. I can't do that, Dave. Exactly. <laughs> so Open the pod bay doors, how? Exactly. I can't do that, Dave. <laughs> so I think, you know, there's, it's, it's, you know, and, and are we, have we freaked ourselves out for no good reason? I, I may, maybe, you know, I, I mean, that's thing, something that when you think about, you know, one of the big things that's kind of rising here, and this is Tolkien didn't talk about capitalism per se, but when we, he also is talking about the machine and people against people's will and dominion. And, you know, having markets and so is uh, instrumental to us having the material well being that, we have a lot in the modern world, right? But yeah. and so we go back to you know philosophers and and really the first modern or first ever economist Adam Smith, who really articulated the idea that there's these counterbalances that happen in a society if you let people compete and get enough individual freedom that it, it won't be perfect, but it's going to be better than it being a totally top down system, right? We've tried communism has been attempted, right? And Certainly you have what's happening in China right now is an experiment of communism and capitalism. And that's a very interesting thing to see that's happening. So when you have a technology like artificial intelligence in that context, yeah, you know, it's really going to test people's faith as well as their comfort with having such a powerful technology involved with the need to make profit, yeah. right? And so what's going on with the the board, there's the OpenAI has a board, a very small board that was small and became even smaller f for a number of different reasons. And then they voted Sam Altman, th this young dynamic CEO, out of the company on Friday. They basically fired him. And then the chairman of the board, who is the president of the company, they didn't even consult him. So he just quit. And then it's just total, out, complete turmoil. I'm yeah. out, bros. I'm out, bros. <laughs> so complete turmoil. And, and a lot of the reasons I have is because there's this concern. They set up the board. It's, it's a nonprofit, but making profit. And the board is, has this, this sort of, this charter to be very aggressive, you could say, about making sure that this technology, as much as possible, doesn't evolve in a dangerous way that could end humanity. I mean, people, that's how yeah. people talk about it. And so, you know, we've talked before about 
the movie Oppenheimer and Christopher Nolan has been asked about artificial intelligence. And, you know, it's, it's a very topical thing that's happening. But it's really interesting to think about Tolkien and how much, how much the story of the Rings of Power actually applies to what's happening. Not a complete one for one, but if you think about it, and you really, and I started thinking about it myself, but it really, it's interesting to think about aspects of Celebrimbor, who first creates the rings, the elven rings of power, there are three of them, but he's working with this mysterious, very talented smith, blacksmith, whose name is Anatar, which means the Lord of Gifts in Elvish. And he's just helping Celebrimbor and his, his elves, his engineers ultimately, make this this technology even better. He's he's allowing them to make ChatGPT like, 10, right? Where ChatGPT Chat 4 or 5 is coming. We're going to blow people's socks off even more. And they're like, okay, cool. And they think that they don't know who he is. But I think that's that's one thing that's really... Um, you can sort of see these parallels. And it's not to say it's Sam or the head of technology, Ilias Discover. I guess apparently he's one of the ones who sort of maybe kind of had a little bit of a real panic maybe or just or not a panic like has real reasonable differences of, of opinion about how the company yeah. should go forward yeah and, and, and is worried about the, the, the speed at which it's going forward yeah. and its ability to protect itself and humanity <laughs> yeah and as a measure of our gratitude these heroes shall be granted an honor unrivaled in all our laws they will be escorted to the Grey Havens and granted passage across the sea to dwell for all eternity in the blessed realm, the far west, the undying lands of Valinor. At last, they are going home! The best story that's really come out that I've read was by The Atlantic and... This time it was by journalist Karen Howe and, and Charlie Warzell. And if Charlie Warzell has done a lot of reporting and he was produced to a column at New York Times. So I've, I've followed him um, for a while and they did a great story because they went and talked to about 10 different sources. And it was really about what has happened in the last year since ChatGBT launched and how that's caused a kind of cascade of both positive and exciting. Right. But also challenging developments. You know, they're really, in a way, what you get from the stories have been, they're kind of riding this wild stallion. And so, you know, there's that impulse of let's keep going because the race is now on. Right. And with, with Google and Amazon and all these different companies, like Apple's going to have it in their operating system next year. Yeah. So that the race is on and for different reasons, they want to stay on top because they've, they're this nonprofit and, and uh, Microsoft's invested all this money. A lot of investors have put a lot of money into it. But they've had challenges. You know, they, they grew really fast, and not everything's been ready. And they've there's been problems with, with the, some of the first models. And they're built on these things called large language models, which are basically mappings of how the brain works, especially from a linguistic functioning. But through the analysis of how our the speech works, as well as, as writing and words and communication, they've been able to analyze and, and, and really distill out of that sort of how our human intelligence works, but they're doing it with a lot of mathematics and statistics. And so it's pretty amazing. And a lot of the early search, you know, search algorithms are based on that. They had, they're sort of the early steps to getting to us this more and more complexity of how information is processed, isolated, understood in terms of subcategories, predictively, all this sort of stuff. So we'll talk about that maybe some other time. But, but I think one of the things that's really interesting is that there's a number of different characters involved 
So Sam is pushed to the side on Friday. It emerges that Ilya uh, Suskever is really, he's the head, like really technology person who's been driving all this. And he's, he's important in academic circles. He was important. Some of his papers and research were important to leading to breakthroughs in artificial intelligence. And he started a few of the past year that OpenAI was going too fast. And, and he was starting to get a little bit nervous about it, but he also really believes in it. And what comes out of the reporting is something really interesting. So I'm going to read from it a little bit because I think when we talk about characters in Lord of the Rings, like Kella Brimbor, we talk about Anatar, we talk about Sauron, we talk about what were the characters, you know, whether we're talking about Galadriel and Kilgalad and sort of the fire being really actually fed by accident. It's, it's actually this sort of, things backfiring on people in different ways. Right. And so what we're seeing kind of play out is aspects of that in real life. And so here I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from this article, really the meat of it. And so here we go. About It's about midway through the article. The release of GPT-4 also frustrated the alignment team. Now the alignment team, aside here real quick, they're kind of involved for like safety of the AI system. Right, they want to... They align AI with, with the values that they have and keep it in, in alignment versus letting it falling out of alignment would be possibly bad where it starts doing things that are not good. For humanity. For humanity. And, and sec- safety and, and that, you know, they want to have a human-centered, humanity-centered technology. So, continuing, which was focused on further upstream AI safety challenges, such as developing various techniques to get the model to follow user instructions and prevent it from spewing toxic speech or, quote, hallucinating, unquote, confidently presenting misinformation as fact. Many members of the team, including a growing contingent fearful of the existential risk of more advanced AI models, felt uncomfortable when how quickly GPT-4 had been launched and integrated widely into other products. They believed that the AI safety work they had done was insufficient. Wow. The tensions boiled over at the top. As Altman and OpenAI president Greg Brockman encouraged more commercialization, the company's chief scientist, Ilya Suskever, grew more concerned about whether OpenAI was upholding the governing nonprofit's mission to create beneficial AGI. Over the past few years, the rapid progress of OpenAI's large language models had made Suskever more confident that AGI would arrive soon and thus more focused on preventing its possible dangers. According to Jeffrey Hinton, an AI pioneer who served as Suskever's doctoral advisor at the University of Toronto and has remained close with him over the years. Wow. In parentheses, Suskever did not respond to requests for comments. So Suskever is going back to at least one mentor and being like, I'm worried about this, you know, these are things that we were worried about. And just to repeat again, because we mentioned before, but make sure that everybody understood, AGI is an acronym that means Artificial General Intelligence. So I explained a little bit, but just to kind of remind you, that's basically, if you think about that, that's like something like a, a robot that is like a super smart human. So continue with the article. Anticipating the arrival of this all-powerful technology, Suskever began to behave like a spiritual leader. Three employees who worked with him told us, his constant enthusiastic refrain was feel the AGI. Feel the AGI. A reference to the idea that the company was on the cusp of its ultimate goal. At OpenAI's 2022 holiday party held at the California Academy of Sciences, Suskever led employees in a chant. Feel the AGI. Feel Feel the AGI. AGI. 
Feel the AGI. The phrase itself was popular enough that OpenAI employees created a special feel the AGI reaction emoji in Slack. Dude, that's crazy. And for those of you who don't know what Slack is, if you're not, you know, kind of using these digital tools in your work, Slack is a it's a communication tool for a lot of businesses. Like it's like having an internal messenger on your on your computer, so you can talk with all your colleagues. Okay. So continuing, the more confident Suskever grew about the power of OpenAI's technology, the more he also allied himself with the existential risk faction within the company. For a leadership offsite this year. According to two people familiar with the event, Suskever commissioned a wooden effigy from a local artist that was intended to represent an unaligned AI. That's like, AI. that's like Skynet, right? Bad AI. <laughs> or just maybe that's like the worst case. This right. is an AI that's gone off, you know, off the rails. So their definition, that is one that does not meet a human's objectives. So it's not, it's not at that point, it's like maybe actually the people at OpenAI can't even get it to like behave. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. (laughs) (laughs) Continuing, he set it on fire to symbolize OpenAI's commitment to its founding principles. So you took this thing as sort of basically some sort of representation of, of like it's an effigy. So it's, it's, it, you know, it it looks like a, it's a bad Frankenstein and he he burned it. Yeah. Uh, He set it on fire to, right, to symbolize. So uh, OpenAI's commitment to its founding principles. In July, OpenAI, announced the creation of a so-called super-alignment team, with Suskever co-leading the research. OpenAI would expand the alignment team's research to develop more upstream AI safety techniques, with a dedicated 20% of the company's existing computer chips, in preparation for the possibility of AGI arriving in this decade, the company said. That's crazy. So they need more powerful uh, microchips, and they need more you know, powerful techniques to basically welcome this... AGI into existence. Yeah, feel the AGI. They need diapers, they need lots of <laughs> milk. Lots of milk. And lots of yeah. guardrails. Lots of guardrails, yeah. Don't give it the keys. <laughs> Don't put to your the finger car. in that. Don't give it to the keys of the car. No, wait, we are giving the keys to the car for these things. Yeah. Okay, continuing. Through it all, Altman pressed onward. In the days before his firing, just he just got to dr- keep going forward. Yeah. In the days before his firing, he was drumming up hype about OpenAI's continued advances. The company had begun to work on GPT-5, he told the Financial Times, before alluding days later to something incredible in store at the APEC Summit, as APEC. Quote, just in the last couple of weeks, I have gotten to be in the room when we sort of pushed the veil of ignorance back and the frontier of discovery forward, he said. Quote, getting to do that is a professional honor of a lifetime, end quote. Wow. According to reports, Altman was also looking to raise billions of dollars from SoftBank and Middle Eastern investors to build a chip company to compete with NVIDIA and other semiconductor manufacturers, as well as lower costs for OpenAI. It's what Apple did. Mm-hmm. In a year, Altman had helped transform OpenAI from a hybrid research company into a Silicon Valley tech company in full growth mode. In this context, it is easy to understand how tensions boiled over. OpenAI's charter placed principle ahead of profit, shareholders, and any individual. The company was founded in part by the very contingent that Suskever now represents. Those fearful of AI's potential, with beliefs at times seemingly rooted in the realm of science fiction. And that also makes up a portion of OpenAI's current board. But Altman, too, positioned OpenAI's commercial products and fundraising efforts as a means to the company's ultimate goal. 
He told employees that the company's models were still early enough in development that OpenAI ought to commercialize and generate enough revenue to ensure that it could spend without limits on alignment and safety concerns. And diapers and guardrails. ChatGPT is reportedly on pace to generate more than $1 billion a year. Altman's firing can be seen as a stunning experiment in OpenAI's unusual structure. It's possible this experiment is now unraveling the company as we've known it and shaking up the direction of AI along with it. If Altman had returned to the company via pressure from investors and outcry from current employees, the move would have been a massive consolidation of power. It would have suggested that, despite its charters and lofty credos, OpenAI was just a traditional tech company after all. Even with Altman out, this tumultuous weekend showed just how few people have a say and the progression of what might be the most consequential technology of our age. AI's future is being determined by an ideological fight between wealthy techno-optimists, zealous doomers, and multi-billion dollar companies. The fate of open AI might hang in the balance, but the company's conceit, the openness it is named after, showed its limits. The future, it seems, will be decided behind closed doors. Or a closed forge. <laughs> so what's interesting to me is, yeah, this sort of like, you know, uh, the Vinod Kosla, who's a legendary venture capitalist in Silicon Valley and is one of the investors in OpenAI, he did an op-ed in a publication called The Information. So for those who are not following, not involved Silicon Valley, it's a very important publication. They do a lot of reporting and on technology in this in the sector. And he did an op-ed, and what's interesting when I read it was this stark, the virtues of entrepreneurship and capitalism and having faith and giving founders of companies the ability to to push things and to because they're gonna fight for 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 the vision. And in contrast to some of the members on the board who are the, not these well-known people who are involved with AI or technology, but they are part of this, they have two of them have signed on to be part of this, what they call effective altruism movement. Mm -hmm. And that's basically this like this idea that everything that you do or money you do should be maximized to do the most good for humanity. It's sort of like a the North, North Star of the company should be for humanity. Well, it's sort of like Google's original was like, you know, don't be evil. Yeah. And, and, but more than that, the way, you know, even the jobs you take should have this in mind, you know, and the, and the charities to support should, should give money to the things that are going to do the most maximum good for the most people in the world. And, you know, it's, it's very, it's very noble. It's very lofty, but it's, people are now saying, well, this is this, is this kind of ideology that creates this kind of unrealistic sort of thing that, that is why Sam Altman got fired from his own company. And and so some people are saying this is a bit wrong. So in Vinod Costa's op-ed, he basically said he called it a religion. Hmm. That's his word. And that's interesting to me, you know, in for some a publication like the information, as someone feels Vinod Costa to call it a religion. He is challenging that idea and he's putting an side to the idea of, of you know an entrepreneur. Right. Capitalist. And a cap a more capitalist view of the world. And it's interesting going back again to Gilgalad. One of the things I read from that is like, and and now Elias Discover is sort of saying now now all these employees are going to leave as of today, um, or threatening to leave. Uh, Microsoft has now hired Sam Altman and his number two, and they are going to now be part of Microsoft. So it's just this incredible drama. But I think what's sort of interesting about it when we think about uh, Tolkien is just how, again, I think the effect, effect of altruists have definitely gotten people's attention. They've shown that they are willing to pull the reins, right? 
Right. Insofar as even the most lucrative technology breakthrough in, you know, recent history. Yeah. Because the feeling is that this could be an all powerful technology. And people go like, well, is this science fiction? What's going on here? And I think that where the Tolkien thing and the Gilgalad thing comes in is in multiple ways. We're not saying any of these people are these individual characters. It's not a one-to-one person as Celebrimbor or Galadriel or Gilgalad or, you know, or even Sauron. It's just like, but these aspects of these archetypes are in the mix, you know, and, and Tolkien based his on ancient stories too. And it's sort of like, these are things about human nature and, and power and how the universe works and technology and how it can be good, but it can be, there can be negative effects, right? So we look at the atom bomb, we look at quantum physics and then the development of the nuclear weapons and, and J. Robert Oppenheimer and, you know, Christopher Nolan's the most talked about movie and you and I saw in the theater. We both think it's a great movie. You know, we, we, we look at those things. And so what do we, how do you, what do you do and how do you handle it? So this group, they said, let's, we're pulling the reins. We're, we're hitting the brakes on this and, and it's causing, and if, but to the, back to the rings of power and Galadriel, there's that, there could be a perspective where this did not actually, I mean, maybe it pauses it, but the reaction to the reaction right. could end up being worse, right? It could be that now they're less, they're, they're the, the techno optimists, quote unquote, the wealthy techno optimists who are the venture capitalists and the funders and the, and the Sam Altman's of Silicon Valley and all the people that, that, that really subscribe to his worldview, which is a little bit more of a, a this entrepreneur worldview are, are saying, curse these, these doomers, these, right. these, these naive, but, they're having their freak outs, they're having the nervous breakdowns and, and they're, they don't know what they're talking about. We need to get them out of the picture. Right. Right. But what's really interesting. We can make it happen. It, we're not worried about the consequences yeah. because we feel like if we make enough money, we can build in, you know, put out the fire after it starts. Yeah, and I think a lot you, of resources do that. Yeah, and this is and this is the same goody two shoe stuff we've heard. Beginning, you know, you can say, is Tolkien a goody two shoe? Is that what? It, but this comes back to Tolkien, right? What was the context in which Tolkien was writing those books? World War One, World War Two, Adolf Hitler, right? He did live through the consequences where things got out of control, right? And I think I don't think my view on it is not so much. Hopefully it's all going to work out and, and this is just a drama. But you could say that when this much power gets surged through the system, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot can happen. And it reminds me of a great techno track called Energy Flash, which the journalist Simon Reynolds named his big compendium book on the history of rave culture on called Energy Flash. And it's just that song is, is about that. It's about this, the, the surge of power that can run through our modern technological age. Right. And that can be exhilarating. It can be in the form of like rave culture music, which you and I are part of. Right. Really, really amazing from an art point of view. But there are negatives too. We saw negative things in that scene too. People going too far. People just totally losing it on some right. level. And I think to me, that's where I go. That's where I go a little bit. That's where if you think there are people who are actually at OpenAI and within it, they are there with Celebrimbor, with right. with the spirit, with the specter of, of Sauron in the room, and some of them are going, "This doesn't, I this is 
this is feeling really correct. This is feeling too much to me now. And I, I'm a little, and even you think about some Ilias Scribbles are saying, feel the AGI fit. Like what they got in that story from him was really interesting because on one level, he's really worried about it, but he's obviously really believes. He and, wants the baby to be a good baby though. You want yeah. a good kid. <laughs> you want yeah. one that behaves, that's well behaved yeah. in school, you know, follows and maybe rules, what it a is, good citizen. Yeah. You don't want to have like, you yeah. know, Melkor as a kid right i mean that's the other thing it's like we've had if they have control over yeah their their agi somebody else yeah there's going to be there's potentially going to be other agis that won't have the same guardrails right other rings of power other rings of power yeah um i guess the yeah the question i think everybody's always worried about the one ring you know to me part of me is as a as a, a fan of science fiction and and a big we're talking about rings of power rings that there's a part of me that defaults to yeah this is want to think about the the negative star and i guess my thing would be like i don't want to be that way i want to be optimistic no, of course but it's very interesting no at no time that do can i remember since i've been following technology part of technology in terms of my career in terms of writing about it from whether it's from the art aspect from the other aspects right. Can I remember there being this much existential sense of unknown and crisis about what, where we're headed? And what's interesting to me is that I feel like I've kind of been more on the negative side, just the cautionary side. But then to hear that now, that is, a, there is a big part of the contingent of the culture, this culture, the, the doomers, that that's really interesting to me that there's a, even the head technology guy at OpenAI. Basically, it seems like he had a little bit of both. I don't think he just had like a panic about it. I think he was worried that they were going too fast. That's clear in that story right. that they felt like on one part of the company's pushing really hard. The other part is saying, and they're going, wait a second. This is not what I thought I signed up for. I, I, I want this to be done the right way. Right. And there's a difference there. And then obviously that got all weird. And, but I can't remember anything like this in the last. 30 years where you have people actually talking like this, they sound a lot like how I feel like I have thought, or you and I have talked about it for a long time. And so it's interesting. And it reminds me because I had a professor at UCLA when I was taking a, this was a foundational computer science course. And he, I learned about Alan Turing in that, about Turing machines, about, you know, compilers and assembly code. And no, I did not learn assembly code, but I learned about what it is and how, you know, these systems are built on no, it's, uh, yeah, ones and zeros. And, and so learn about that. And at the end of that class, you know, he really kind of gave a whole thing about the future is both very, it, it was pretty negative actually, but he was also the mind like, this is happening and nobody can do anything about it. And I could tell on one level intellectually, he was all into it. So it's a very interesting dichotomy, right? right. And that dichotomy is there, right? And I think that dichotomy is what they, they're exploring in the rings of power. They start to both with Galadriel, right? right about her. She's going to try to stop it, but if anything, she's actually going to accelerate it. It's actually right the source of yeah. And the Celebrimbor, who's like, oh, we're going to try to make we're actually going to do the stuff to make us more we're better. good. Yeah. We're going to do a good AGI. Yeah, we want the AGI so that yeah. we can preserve yeah. the goodness of the magic of the elves. Yeah. And so I'm not saying that we're headed for you know Skynet, but but I think the thing the reason why Tolkien's stories and his treatment of it i think have so much power it's not about the allegory it's just the fact that the feeling mm -hmm. i think back to feel the agi as well as this the series has the feels right. to me what's interesting about all that is that 
I think what he, what, what we get from Tolkien is, is someone who lived in a couple different capacities through World War One and War Two. You had an interesting story, though, about his relationship with, uh, what was it, the recorder or something? A dictaphone, the dictaphone, yeah. Yeah, there's a story. So Tolkien, you know, the stereotype is that he's all anti-technology. But I think he himself, as we said in that letter, he talked about magic and the machine. And he said that they're essentially the same thing, but they're, they're basically different sides of the same coin or, yeah. or gem, really. And, right. and if you turn it, and it has to do with how you use it, if it's used in a negative way, and if it has that negative will put into its design, right? Like the nuclear bomb, right? Then we have maybe a potential problem, right? But then he also talks about magic. And, and so that's a really important theme because the, there's a famous story where he went and visited some friends and they had a dictaphone, which is basically like a tape recorder. But at the time, you know, home sort of recorders were not very common, right? You had, you had like things that could play records or whatnot, right? Um, phonographs and things like that, but something that could actually record and then play it back out. That was very new at the time. So this is some time after World War II and he goes and visits some friends and he, and they have it and they say, Hey, you should check this out. And he's like, He's like, whoa, you know, what is this? He's generally kind of not, he's not, he's not a techno optimist to say that, right? right? Um, he is ultimately a doomer, right? So he, he's like, wait a second. I said, no, check it out. And so he says, okay. Well, he steps up to it and he, he says, all right, I'm going to give this a shot. And I think they play some stuff for him. So he was, he was intrigued. He was interested. And so he, he reads the Lord's Prayer back to it to exercise demons out of it or anything negative out of it. And he reads it in Gothic, actually. And then he starts playing with it. And he actually apparently had a quite a good time with it. And we know we have recordings of him because later on he did readings and stuff. So he was interested. He was not so against technology that he didn't understand that good things to be done with it, obviously. Right. And he had a, he had a car on point and apparently he really liked driving it, even though he decided to get rid of it. I think he got rid of it because it was like the combustion engine. He was like too much pollution, too loud. But he, he, I think my understanding is he enjoyed driving it for a while. It was, it was great fun because he had a young family and stuff and getting them around. So, so there's that. So what I'm saying there is it's more subtle than people think. Right. But he definitely did, I think, err on the side of, well, wait a second. You may end up with machine guns and mustard gas and uh, artillery and nuclear bombs. So maybe we should just, uh, he was definitely saying, slow down. And, and it's interesting because Tolkien has had a huge influence in Silicon Valley, whether it's Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel. Hey, maybe Ulias Skever read it as a kid. Right. And, and, you know, I'm just trying it all back. Who the hell knows? I do think Tolkien gives one that's a little bit of that. And there's been, you know, and even science fiction writers who said like, that's, that's a negative thing that he's been, you know, he's given maybe people a little too, maybe people a little too afraid of, of this stuff. But I would just say that. Sure, but I would just say he's speaking from experience. Ultimately, he's writing from experience. Right. You, you can't say you can't say War One and and how technology was deployed. We're talking whether you're talking about propaganda, right? You're talking yeah. about you're talking about gas chambers. You're talking about battlefield weaponry. I mean, l millions of people died during World War Two, right? And World Two, World One, World War Two. So right. they were they had a huge human cost, right? And we are still living with the nuclear bomb and that's still out there, right? So I think Tolkien's, we don't have to follow it to the T, but I think it is something that, right. as part of that voice, ooh. The spirit of his uh, careful expression. Yeah. So when we talk about all that, what do you, you know, we just watched the Rings of Power episode one. There's going to be more for us to explore that. I think that 
there's a part where she at the end of the episode she's she jumps off the boat yes to go back and that's a key this moment a key like decision point for her and they, they really kind of they were they, they were a little heavy-handed in the drawing out of that moment you know uh but it is a key moment for the whole series so i, I you know you understand why they did it but they kind of keyed it up a bit but they're about to, she's about to return home and it's this gift that is not given lightly to elves to let them return home and she uh when the dagger of her brother is taken from her it just it starts this like ticking time bomb in her like oh am i going to do this or am i not going to do this and she eventually right at the last second jumps off the boat and while this meteor is is shooting across the screen. it's this really great scene an interwoven climax of all this other stuff happening and you're seeing you peek in and all the different storylines and what's happening with them as they see this meteor. Yeah, it's a cool moment where it's sort of like that. It connects all the all the storylines right. and all the characters. It's like this. It's literally a thread. Yeah, a needle on a thread running through all of them, and and the the oboe of the music. Yeah, the like has a bit of that sort of wonder in it. Yeah, and sort of like sort of classical Hollywood movie kind of. And then the timing of the it. landing, the impact of the the. Meteor and her diving into the water are just like, it's this beautiful, like, it's great. And then. Well, what's made the there thematic or tying the consequence of maybe a more earthly decision with a more cosmic right. event. And then the final scene, which is Nori, the Harfoot, sees yeah. a old man, a mysterious figure. She mysterious sees a mysterious figure. figure. In kind, the of, kind of, kind of, almost a fetal position yeah. in the crater, and when it, the camera zooms out, it looks like the eye of Sauron, which feels like a red herring. A little bit we were talking. Yeah, is it Gandalf? Is it not? You think it's Gandalf? I think it may very well be. I don't know if I'm crazy about that idea. I think it's got to be. It's definitely a wizard, right? Definitely a wizard. It's absolutely, sorry. it's got to be an. Astari. It's absolutely a Maiar. Absolutely a wizard. A Maiar is Tolkien's word for an angel or angelic level power. And Nistari is sort of the elven word for a wizard. So yeah, we know there's two blue wizards. We know there's Gandalf the Grey. We know there's Radagast the Brown. And the only other one they were talking about was Saruman. I have a slight theory that maybe it's Saruman. Yeah. Well, at, a younger, at, a younger, at a younger age, because he's associated with fire. And it might be make sense they send him to, to contend with Sauron right. in terms of fire. Um, and it could be that that's going to be one of the tragic arcs of the story. Yeah, another that, tragic. Well, in, in the middle of he's good up until really once the Lord of the Rings story proper starts, he's right. very much incredible. But before that, he's but there is something there, and, and maybe what maybe that could be a tragic arc where he is. We get the hint that he is at the end corruptible and could be corrupted because there's well, always something there where he is a little bit not sure of himself, right? Right, and there's that moment where he uses the. F- the, he burns the fireflies or something like that yeah. in the next episode. Yeah, the fireflies die, and he, he has a, there's a little bit about Is that because he's evil? Yeah, there's just a little about him to that that to me is not Gandalf. And, right. and I, I, I see what people are saying, and maybe that's going to be the case. But there's always been this thing about Saruman and Gandalf being confused with one another. Right. And I think it would be interesting if, if it's actually Saruman in an earlier form where he does do real good and he yeah. does earn the right to be the head of the council. Right. But. You know, we see in him, there's temptation. There's, there's, there is some darkness there that is going to be exploited at some point. And what we maybe we'll see though is 
he does enough good though early on, right. and and th- th- he does have a fall later, which Calibrimbor does, which many all Tolkien's yeah. characters, and which is just Tolkien's humanity that people make mistakes, right. some bigger than others, and some are right. truly terrible. So so you know again tying this back to current events, we see that every day in our in the news, right, and 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 people's lives, and I think that's why Tolkien continues to be relevant. Yeah, I I, I agree. Like this, this watching it again really kind of hit home, like how relevant and pertinent it is to my life here in 2023 and the world we live in and things that we're going to have to grapple with as a society and a culture and governments and businesses and all these important aspects of our life are going to have to deal with. Well, there's so many contradictions, right? Yeah. And I think Tolkien, people accuse him of being very black and white and is, but there are, I think there's contradictions because the thing about contradictions is you can flip them. Like any binary, you can flip mm-hmm. and turn it. And coming back to AI, you know, computer science and computer it's, at the moment, it's based on binary, right? Oh, yeah. And how things flip and they can flip very quickly and turn. That's why, you know, to some degree, that binary is sort of it's in our social media, and like, like it or don't like it, you know, right. all that sort of just sort of, in some level, a bit of a simplistic, but that can be orchestrated in very complex systems. And so right. the, the models that the neural networks and large, large language models that sort of undergird what we experience of something like chat GPT and stuff like that are just these very mind boggling complex sort of relationship managements of information. So how that all plays out is interesting. I, I had a thing, you know, when I was waking up this morning and thinking about, we we're going to talk about it. That was the thing with AGI and I'd read the article in the Atlantic about everything that's kind of, going down in this really in-depth article that's really talking about what's been going on the past year and reading about feel the AGI, feel the AGI. And it really made me think about the same things that make Tolkien relevant and interesting and compelling from an archetypal, mythological level. Right. We've yeah, talked on this show about, and, and in Wraithland, we talk about the myth and the machine. And I, it was just a phrase that sort of like, what does it really mean, you know? Right. But the more I think about it, the more I think that there's something there about about this idea that emergence that what emerges out of just the universe right right is these deeper patterns right. and one of them can be it could be life itself right it can be intelligence like an agi right and it can also be the ring of power right it can also be also a hero or a balrog or a balrog the Balrog that was, I can't even remember the, the origin story of the Balrog that they put in the show yet. We'll get to it. Oh, that? Oh, gosh. I can't even remember it. I think okay, that's, that's an area. We'll, we'll cover that when we get to that episode. But yeah. Yeah. Which, which I think is a good place for us to sign off. Yeah. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us for episode one. And we will be back to consult the machine, our Oracle. Yeah, maybe we'll make that a regular segment. Yeah, maybe that a regular segment. But yeah, the next episode, we're going to dive into that one next. And take care, everybody. Until next time. Until next time. I'm Thomas Kelly. I'm Seth Levine. All right. Peace. Peace. Thank you, friends and listeners from all walks of life. You can catch us and subscribe to our blog, substack.rafeland.com, and our sister blog on electronic music and techno history, substack.ghostdeep.com. You can send us questions or thoughts at rafelandpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, Namarie. Namarie.